I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc., all one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today, my guest is master acting coach Rob McCaskill. Rob McCaskill is my red wine. I work with him on every audition, and he has helped me so much with technique, performance, and understanding the dynamics of a character. Some of my best auditions have been with Rob. I love him so much, and he's such a great guy. I'm so excited. Here's the episode. Rob McCaskill, how you doing? I'm great, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing really good. Thanks for being here. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's kind of ironic. The person, uh, the studio we're recording out of is also the person who introduced me to this facility is Julian Giello, oh, which wow. is also the person who introduced you to me. Yes, that's right. And you've been my acting coach for like two years. Mm-hmm. God, now. Yeah, almost exactly. Mm-hmm. 2017 is when I met you and you've changed. I tell Julian all the time, you're, you're my red wine. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you got a way of working with actors that's so soothing. And I'm, I'm sure you can imagine, you know, there's so many coaches in the city and so many of them are cash businesses yeah. and get you in and out, but you have a, a real way of, of grounding the actor and grounding the moment. And I'm such a big fan of you and your work and your process, but I like to start at the beginning. Yeah. So let's go to the very beginning. You grew up in, is it Missouri? St. Louis, Missouri. How was that? Well, it was, um, an interesting place to grow up. You know, it's a, it's a racist town. Yeah. Or at least it was at the time. I think it still is to a degree. You know, that's where Ferguson, Missouri really is, is a part of St. Louis. Yeah. Um, so I went to all white schools and, uh, I think it was fifth grade before I had uh, an African American friend. No way. Yeah. Uh, and he and I are still fra- Facebook friends. He lives in, uh, Hawaii now, but, um, you know, I, I think it was about the same time I first met a Jewish guy cause I went to Catholic school. Okay. And, uh, K through 12. I went through Catholic school up to eighth grade, and then high school I went to a public school. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And then talk to me. Were, were your parents in the arts at all? Not a, not a bit, um, although they were film buffs. So early on, I remember my dad and my mom and my older brothers talking about this performance and that performance, and people like Rod Steiger, they said, watch this guy. You know, so from a very early age, I was sort of indoctrinated into 
watching the performance and watching the authenticity of a performance. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then at what point did you decide to get in the arts yourself? Well, I, I grew up writing. I loved writing poetry. I loved writing short stories. Um, and I loved reading great literature, you know, Faulkner and Hemingway and those people. Um, but then it felt lonely. It felt lonely to sit in a room alone hour after hour and try to write paragraphs and stories. Um, so my mom said to me, why don't you go to acting school? I think she wanted me to, you know, uh, get back to college because I had taken a year off. Uh, and, and I was sort of delighted by that idea. Interesting. Yeah. And then where did you go? I went to Webster University, which has a, an acting program. And I remember it was the first time I was in class and I liked everybody in the class. Wow. Yeah. That's always a big thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, growing yeah. up is like, those guys are bullies. Those guys are boring. Yeah. In acting class, I liked everybody. Interesting. Yeah, I found my tribe. And did you feel that kind of moment of it being like, oh, this is this is it? Definitely. I definitely, you know, loved the exercises. I loved the improvisation. I loved the exploration of characters, you know, to see sort of like a, a painting come to life. What, was there a certain technique that the school was focused on? Well, we had a very old acting teacher my freshman year. Her name was Jacobina Caro, and she had lived in New York and L.A., and she was blackballed during the McCarthy era and had to leave New York uh, and, and you know, got a job at this university in the mid Midwest. Wow. Yeah. No way. So she taught a conglomeration of technique and, um, you know, mostly stuff she had developed. Well, but it was all rooted in Stanislavski, of course. So were you guys doing mainly theater work in that class? I mean, you know, now we live in film TV yeah. scenes. Like, was it all theater that you guys were doing? Yeah. Wow. But, you know, most of the work really carries over. I think the basic chores of uh, an actor are applicable to anything. Yeah. And then at what point did... I mean, I imagine L.A. and New York were still the same then. Yeah. You had a decision to go to either one. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, you grow up in St. Louis and you see these TV shows like Naked City and The Defenders. I know these names don't mean anything to you, but when I was a kid, these were black and white cop shows with New York actors. And you'd see like a guy who had a guest star spot and later you go, oh, that's Jack Klugman. And he goes on to do The Odd Couple and becomes a famous actor. Yeah. But before The Odd Couple, he was a jobber. You know, and, and as a kid, you kind of get to know these people. Totally. You didn't know their names, but you go, oh, that guy. I remember seeing this TV show, Room 222, which was about high school. And I love this show because, you know, I was in high school. Yeah. And there was this one actor that I thought was overacting, but I loved him anyway. I loved his passion. And that was Richard Dreyfus. No way. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so then, because of that, you felt a yearning for theater, so you came to New York? Not just for theater, but for the New York experience, for the streets and the crowding and the subways. I didn't want to be in a car all wow. the time. You know, I wanted to rub elbows with people and see faces. So this was, was this the 80s then? This was 1979. When 1979, right yeah. on the cusp of the 80s. Yeah. So what was it like coming to New York during real New York? I mean, was Studio 54 still going then? Yeah. Wow. It was, yeah. So you got to experience the real New York, not Starbucks and Citibanks. <laughs> you know, I moved on to 9th Avenue between 51st and 52nd. Which was no joke then. It was no joke then. And there was no intercom system. So you had to go down and wait for your friends. So I'm waiting in front of the building, and this guy comes up and goes, this is my corner. I said, what? He said, I sell drugs here. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not selling drugs. I'm waiting for my scene partner. <laughs> he looked at me like I said, I'm waiting for my cross-dressing partner. No yeah. way. Um, you know, it was, it was, you had to look over your shoulder. Yeah. 
but you get breakfast for 99 cents, eggs, potatoes, toast, coffee. You know, you leave a quarter for a tip. Wow. Yeah. Uh, dinner, more dinner than you could eat. Uh, Cuban Chinese, six bucks. I was paying sixty-two fifty a month rent. Oh my god! Yeah, we had a big two-bedroom, four guys. It's two fifty total, so I paid sixty-two fifty, and I could make that working in a restaurant in two nights. No way! So I paid my rent in two nights. And so you went down the waiting tables route to survive at yeah. first. Uh, I worked in a coffee shop. Wow. And uh, I took class at HB Studio. Okay. That's still going. It's still right? going. Yeah. yeah, it was Uda Hagen's place, yeah. Herbert Berghoff. And I loved every minute of it. Wow. And where, like, were you immersing yourself with a lot of actors here doing... Oh, yeah. Everybody I knew was an actor. Yeah. And uh, I took this class with Stella Adler, this lecture class. Wow. And she talked about research. And so when I played a scene uh, where I had to play an army sergeant, I felt like I got to go talk to a soldier. Yeah. Where are you going to find a soldier? So I looked up. I found out there was Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. Okay. So a girlfriend of mine had a car, and she said, I know where that is. And we drove there. And then you circle this fort, and you go, how are we going to get in? But we see a bar. And we go into this bar, and we meet the exact rank that our characters were, me and this other guy, Joe. No way. And this guy and I and Joe and Julia, we drank beer for about four hours, got hammered. And did you tell him you were actors? We did. Yeah, yeah. And he told us all these details. Wow. And then when Julia would go to the bathroom, he would tell us terrible stuff about war and what happens that he didn't want to say in front of a woman. Yeah. Um, and then our performances were genuinely better. Wow. You know, through osmosis, through not just the details we heard, but the vibe we got. Interesting. Yeah. And how did that scene come out together? Just great. It was yeah. a huge hit. You know, we felt great about it. The teacher gave us a lot of praise and the classmates loved it. And then were you trying to get representation? Was that a, a, a journey you went down? Well, of course, but you know, I just had no idea. Yeah. How, how were you figuring out how to make it as realistic and attainable as possible? You know, you, you, you talk to other guys and, and, you know, you, you, how did you do it and what did you do? And mostly it was, seemed to be a matter of luck to me at that time. You, yeah. you send out, you get into a show, you send out flyers and you kind of know, like, these are going in the trash. Was backstage a thing? Backstage was, was wow. a thing. Wow. And in those days, I wasn't even embarrassed about it. You know, I'd buy it at a newsstand. A few years later, I'd be so embarrassed, I'd buy pornography and I'd put the backstage inside. <laughs> you know, so it was less embarrassing. Yeah, so it was less embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Who, who were some of your contemporaries or peers that went on to work? Was there anyone at HB that, I mean, maybe not. You know, you see faces, but uh, it was later, you know, when I started studying with Wynn Handman, for instance. Okay. Where people were on Broadway. And I remember I had this scene partner. I'd been in class for a few months. And I had the scene partner. It was I was her first scene partner. Um, and then I had to kiss her in the scene. And I could tell she was nervous, you know, and she was, like, perspiring. Yeah. Um, that was Allison Janney. No way. And, uh, you know, she wasn't too nervous after that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing her play a scene from George Bernard Shaw. She, you know, Allison's six feet tall. Yeah, she's huge. And she played this scene with a guy who was 6'4", with Shaw, and they're spouting that language and chasing each other around a table. And I just felt like I'm seeing better theater than most people are paying to see. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was great. And so when you were there it, at the school, were you seeing shows on Broadway? Yeah. And w were prices different then? Yeah, 20 bucks. Wow. Yeah. You get it was forty bucks. You could get a half price voucher and get in for twenty. No, but way. twenty bucks in those days was, you know, 
two thirds of what you're going to make or half of what you're going to make. Yeah. Uh, More than, yeah. yeah. Wow. And but I saw great stuff. You know, I saw George C. Scott. I saw Colleen Dewhurst. I saw Geraldine Page. Wow. I saw Geraldine Page play Gertrude in Hamlet. No way. Her husband was playing the prince. And, you know, you're sitting very close with, at St. Clement's Church, and you, you knew at the time you were seeing something very special. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so then at what point did you kind of logically decide that, you know, you would you would do teaching and coaching? Was that a... Well, logical progression of studying, and then you kind of had some actor friends ask you to help? Or? Yeah. There was a time when I uh, I was in a class where there, there was comments from the actors, and I could tell that this stuff was flowing out of me, that my own observations were just just coming out very easily. Um, so I sort of had a little light bulb go on then. But I think there was a seed planted when I was a child. I went to see uh, Two Sir with Love with Sidney Poitier, where he plays a teacher in a rough neighborhood. And I was about 10 years old, and I saw that, and I thought, wow, that's about the coolest thing a person could do. Yeah. To be a teacher. And and, and how did that – was at that moment you decided to do it? Did you decide to give up pursuing it full time, and, and you felt a calling to teach, or were you still balancing both worlds? I, I had uh, been hired by an improv company, Chicago City Limits, and they sort of got everybody teaching, okay. kind of whether you wanted to or not. But I really enjoyed it. At the same time, I knew I wanted to teach acting, not just improv. So I hung a shingle, and a, a friend of mine had a basement theater that he wasn't using in the morning, so I, I would you know, leave a few bucks for him and use his space. Wow. And uh, I loved it. I wanted to do everything right. I wanted to correct the mistakes I felt that I had endured as a student. I wanted to take all the best stuff that that people had introduced me to and put it all together. Interesting. Yeah. And I wanted to be totally positive, you know. Yeah. Because there were times when I felt that I had been beaten up by teachers. 100%. And I didn't want to do that to anybody. Yeah. I went to Strasbourg. That was a big part of that. Yeah. And then when you did that, did you think of starting your own studio or were you just taking clients or friends or whatever came your way? You know, some of the people that I had worked with at the uh, improv company came over and then I put an ad in backstage and people started showing up. And how was that? Because when you open up to randoms, you know, you can get, I'm sure, some real talent and some raw and then some people that are aliens, for lack of a better... I must say it was almost totally wonderful. I can remember a guy calling me. There was no email in those days, so people had to call you. And this guy saying, listen, um, I wear a dress. Is that going to be a problem? I was like, dude, I don't care what you wear. Yeah. Just come ready. Just come ready. Wow. And so talk to me about, you know, tonally, what what were a lot of actors going out for then in New York? You know, because now we live in the content bubble, but, you know, obviously Hulu and Amazon and Netflix, that didn't exist then. Was it mainly like the the main networks, ABC, CBS? Yeah, you know, in those days, there were just two or three shows produced in New York. Wow. So, so was, would you say it was harder for actors then to find work? Than definitely. It? Wow. Definitely. You had to be, to get on one of those New York shows, you had to be... Uh, either Broadway or big off-Broadway theater person. You had to be a Yaley. You had to, you know, really have a pedigree. The doors were closed to most of us. But people were doing theater. People were doing theater out of town. People were doing theater in town. So um, my goal at that time was to help people climb the ladder, to to go from not doing any projects to doing projects in basements. If you're already doing projects in basements, how do we get you to do, you know, the next level? Wow. And what, 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 when you did that, um, 
were you starting a theater company, so to speak? My wife started a theater company, and, you know, that becomes a lot about raising money. Um, So when 9-11 happened, you know, all money dried up. So that was the end of our theater company. But we produced a bunch of shows uh, in the late 90s. We concentrated on actors who wrote. So we'd take an actor who has written her first play or his wow. first play, and we produce it. That's amazing. It was really great. Yeah, that's the best way to do it, because I feel like a lot of actors, and I've done this, like produce works of, of known playwrights, yeah. where it's like there's so much... It's a, a city that saturated with so much great theater, no one wants to see yeah. another production of The Glass Menagerie. Yeah. But if you do something of your own, you mm-hmm. know, it's a lot more intriguing. Yeah. So then post 9-11, mm-hmm. the theater company floundered. Yeah. And so what were you doing now? Well, by that point, my... Teaching and coaching, coaching in particular, had grown a lot. I'd gone from just teaching class to teaching class plus coaching during the week. And, you know, that, that, then I was working pretty much every day. Wow. And then, um, a guy from class was writing really good original stuff. And he asked me to direct his one man show. And when I started directing his one man show, I thought he needed writing help. So he and I became collaborators on that show. His name's Alex Lyris. And we've done four, stage plays together over the last 20 years. Wow. Yeah. No way. So we would produce these shows together, and we'd do them in New York and do them in L.A. Um, and from that, we got uh, writing agents in L.A. Wow. And we got a, a development deal with Fox Broadcasting for a show about young um, real estate agents. And we got very close to being produced. You know, we got a big chunk of money, and we started working with their development team. We learned a ton. Yeah. You know, we sort of think of these people as, you know, people who interfere with writers. They don't interfere at all. They help you so much. Yeah. They point out little problems where you go, oh, wow, they're right. Look at that. Interesting. Yeah. And then talk to me. What While this was going on, you know... We're we're post nine eleven now, so there's more content, and you know what what were a lot of your clients going out for? Was it mainly episodic works here in New York still, or then you start seeing episodics, but also the indie film jobs, interesting, know, where people start getting in these um, films that are being made for a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, and really cool stuff. You know, you just see people. Breaking in, I can remember getting a call from a producer saying that um, she was producing a film about a female boxer, and they'd hired a female boxer who had never acted because they thought it would be easier to teach a boxer how to act rather than an actor how to box, which, uh, you know, I didn't agree with that. But um, I started working with this young Latina woman um, who came in to my studio. I saw, wow, she's got big shoulders. This is a real fighter. Yeah. Um, And she had a lot of uh, beginner issues which I was able to help her clean up. And um, she went on to make that movie. It was called Girl Fight. That's uh, Michelle Rodriguez. And she went on to be in Fast and the Furious. And Oh, uh, she was a client of yours? Yeah. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. And, you know, she came into class and did scenes in class. And I, I can remember when the story came out that she had never studied acting. And the guy who was her scene partner in class, you know, wrote me a note saying, like, yeah, she never studied acting. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. She was a, you know, uh, a talented person that just needed to get past some of those beginner bumps. Well, it was, it was fast that broke her in, right? Well, you know, first that girl fight, which is a good movie. Girl fight. If okay. you've never seen it. Yeah. Uh, fast and the Furious. Uh, I think she did an indie before that. Did you coach her on the fast audition? No, yeah. but I coached her for some other stuff. And then, um, then she was in Lost. Yeah, Lost. That's right. And Avatar. Yeah, God. Yeah. She's crushing it. Crushing it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, then talk to me, you know, prior to the self-tape world, how were you working with actors? Then was it all about preparing them for the actual audition? Preparing actors for auditions. And I've learned so much because after every audition, I ask the actor, what did they say? What did casting say? What what were the adjustments? So it sort of goes into my data bank in my mind. And um, I've evolved over the years. And as you've been in New York for so long, did you kind of... You know, prior to the self-tape world, did you know what casting director kind of wanted what certain nuances? No. Interesting. Completely oblivious. Wow. But over the years, you sort of, I always ask an actor, what, who's the casting person? Yeah. So I know, oh, that casting person, don't ad-lib at all. Totally. This casting person, they're okay with a little ad-lib. Or this person likes bold choices. This person likes everything kind of very minimal. And do you feel like now that we're probably in a permanent self-tape world, Mm -hmm. do you think that's made it easier for actors or do you think it's made it harder? Well, I do think that the person that goes into the room has an advantage Yeah, because person-to-person contact is very convincing. Totally. Um, On the other hand, the self-tape, you can do 10 takes. Yeah. And you can make sure you got something that really represents your work. Yeah. And there's that... There's a stillness that you don't get in actual auditioning. That's right. Yeah. And your eyes can fill up. And and then talk to me. What, what you know, when you're working with all these clients and all these actors, I imagine you, you see a lot of, of good habits and bad habits. Mm-hmm. What are some traps you see a lot of actors fall into? Well, there's these, uh, like, four main things. Um, pushing, reaching, um, gripping. Um, let's just talk about the difference between pushing and reaching. Uh, pushing is pushing for emotion. Yeah. Um, you know, for instance, with tears, you see some actors, they might be on the verge of tears and they squeeze it and you see tension in their face, yeah. you know. Um, reaching is like when your chin comes out. You're reaching for the moment as if you could get a little bit more by reaching out there. Got it. Of course, it just, it doesn't look good. Yeah. And it just, uh, it, it distracts the viewer from looking at your eyes. Yeah. Um, gripping is tension. We see, you know, the mother of all grips is the back of the neck. Yeah. Uh, when the back of your neck clenches, uh, your chin comes out, your um, voice constricts, and there's a general feeling of hesitancy or uh, carefulness about the work. Hmm. Interesting. So you don't want that. Um, but we don't like to talk about it in terms of the negative. It's always better to give an actor a positive uh, adjustment rather than don't. Yeah. You know, so command your space. You're good enough. Yeah. If you feel you need more, connect to the image connect to the backstory connect to what you want or the misunderstanding in the other person's head yeah it's interesting you know most of the time when an actor comes to me they've studied for a long time they know what an objective is yeah and they're very good at pursuing objectives so i hardly ever talk about objectives wow mostly i talk about filling out details like if my line is to you um uh, come on, Ryan, hurry up. I'm double parked. Yeah. Well, my objective might be to get to wherever we're going. Yeah. My action might be to hurry you up. But one thing I want to know is what kind of car do I have? Love that. If I'm double parked, I got a car. Yeah. And if it's me that gets to decide what kind of car that is, it's not going to be a Hyundai. Wow. Because that doesn't excite you. Yeah, no way. It's a Mustang. For it's sure. a Mustang. Yeah. Right? That's awesome. So, uh you know, I think we do, we do want to fill out. When I help an actor create backstory, 
they relax. Yeah. When I help an actor to create backstory, the nuance, the intangibles really rise. What we always search for is ownership. Interesting. You know, I can remember as a kid watching movies and I wanted to be in the world. You know, when I watched, when I was a little kid, I watched a Disney movie, Flubber, the son of Flubber. Yeah. I, you know, with Fred McMurray. I love this movie and I love thinking that I could be in there. And then when I got to New York and I did an NYU film, I didn't feel like I was in the world. It felt very technical. Yeah. And I just felt like, I guess this was what acting is, very technical. But later, as I learned to engage, as I learned to push my own buttons, I started to feel like I was in the world. Yeah. So then I learned the world isn't created by the lights. It is for the viewer, but not for the actor. Totally. For the actor, the world is created through your imagination. Does that come from Stella still, you know? Well, Stella was big on imagination, but I don't think I understood that at the time. Got it. Now I, I talk about imagination as suggestibility. Interesting. Talking to your suggestibility. We're all suggestible. Wow. You know, so my wife is out of town and I'm alone at night. The building creaks. But I start saying to myself, what if that's not the building creaking? What if there's a guy in the apartment? <laughs> what if he took a knife off the magnetic strip in the kitchen and he's walking toward the bed right now? Yeah. And the first moment I know he's here is when that knife goes through my chest. Jesus. And I'm going to fight for my life. Wow. Well, of course, my heart starts pounding. Yeah. Think about that. My heart accelerated because of what I was thinking. Totally. Right? Or you're walking down the street in New York, you bump shoulders with somebody. Yeah. And two blocks later, your fists are clenched. The adrenaline is just fueling. Oh, It's not from the bump. Yeah. It's from what you said to yourself. Totally. Like I say to myself, I'm all the way over here on the right. This guy's crossing into my lane. Yeah. He bump- I turned my shoulder a little bit. He didn't turn his shoulder a little bit. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm ready for a fist fight. Because of what I'm saying to myself. I love that. So we have to talk to ourselves more to create that state of engagement. And I'm curious to ask you because I don't, I don't think the answer is one or the other. It's mm-hmm. probably a lot, but you know, for a lot of actors listening, I'm sure they're debating like, Oh, do I go to conservatory mm-hmm. or do I just work with a coach or do I find a, 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 a Strasburg and Adler? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do you think about? What do you think about conservatory training? Do you think that's beneficial for actors? Depends on the actor, all the above? Well, the great thing about conservatory training is how many hours a day you get to do it. Yeah. You know, your parents are a combination of your parents and the government are helping you to work 14 hours a day as an actor. Yeah. And of course, that is transformative. Yeah. Friend of mine's kid went to Juilliard and it was so fun to go to see him over those years and to see him develop and to get to know his classmates um, and to talk to him and say, like, what's your day like? Well, classes start at 11 in the morning. Then you have a dinner break for half an hour. Then you rehearse the show you're in. Then at 1030 at night, you meet with your friends and work on their little side projects. Jesus. And you go to sleep at one in the morning and you get up at nine because you got to learn lines. Yeah. I mean, they're doing 14 hours a day. Yeah. So if you're not in that sort of situation, you've got to put all those blocks into your own calendar. Yeah. It's not going to be 14 hours a day, but you got to, you got to find a way to do it a lot. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. And now in your your class, what, what, what kind of work do you, do you focus on in the class? I suggest that people bring in a variety of things. So it might be TV sides one week. It might be Eugene O'Neill the next week. It might be a multi-camera sitcom one week. It might be Shakespeare the next week. Because these different writers 
require different strengths in the in- instrument. And if you can move around to these different genres and different um, mediums, you'll really develop your instrument. Interesting. If you look at um, uh, Anthony Hopkins, for instance, in Silence of the Lambs, he's very still. So in a way, it's a perfect camera performance. Yeah. But there's a size to what he's doing. Totally. That's Shakespearean. Yeah. Living in that stillness is so true. Yeah. And then for your clients and your classmates that have had success, what have been some commonalities you've seen? You know, I mean, I'm sure obviously hard work is a very easy one, but mm-hmm. has there been any consistent things that if you do this, you do not that it's so numerical, but mm-hmm. what have been some common denominators? Devotion. You know, one guy said to me that um, he did two monologues every morning before he peed. Wow. I said, in bed? He said, yeah. He said, for one thing, I'm completely relaxed. Out loud? Yeah. Wow. He said, for another thing, I'm still having a dream, so I do things I would never think of doing at two in the afternoon. Totally. And it's a message to myself, this comes first. So on a day when I got a double shift at the bar, at least I did 15 minutes of acting. Yeah. The other thing is, what I've seen with actors is how they change their self-talk. The dialogue running in their head? Yes. Yeah. Actors usually, after even after a few years in New York, they are modest. And they are willing to kick the hell out of themselves. Yeah. And those actors that start to get work make a transition where they stop kicking themselves and they start appreciating themselves and they give up modesty. Interesting. They might still be modest out loud, but with their friends and in the privacy of their mind, they appreciate their talent and their skill. Wow. Yeah. So we do an exercise every class where actors sit in pairs and affirm themselves. And when actors first come to the class, it makes them very uncomfortable. Yeah. And after a while, they're not uncomfortable. And then usually that self-affirmation carries over into the audition. And that's when they start getting the callbacks. And that's when they start booking. Interesting. So, of course, developing skills is important, but we've all known people that weren't that skillful as actors, but they thought very highly of themselves. Yeah, almost delusional self-belief, you know. It does kind of, there is something to be said about it. It really is. There's a kind of magical thinking that is a part of play. Yeah. That we combine with the ability to handle real-world situations. That magical thinking... People will call it delusional, or people will call it being stuck up, or people will call it being having an ego or a big head. Yeah. But really, it's an ingredient that allows for play. Interesting. Yeah. And and for the classmates and for the students that have gone on to get reps, like what, what would you encourage those listening that don't have reps? What would you think is a good way for people to kind of develop? you know, networking skills and to get seen by these people. Well, one thing I would say is that um, agents are going to be a lot more open to you if you know casting people. So if you go to seminars, work with the casting people first and make a list of what casting people liked you. Yeah. And then when you go in to meet an agent, hand them a piece of paper that says these 10 casting people know my work, know my name and like me. Totally. Totally. That's doing a lot of work for the agent. 
because if if you're not if you're someone that has a, a, a modest resume, it's very hard for the agent to get you seen. But if you can say these ten casting people love my work, yeah, that casting that agent goes oh. I'll, I'll work with that. Yeah, it's easier to take a, a chance on yeah. someone that's got you know some relationships. A hundred percent. And you're you have to be your own agent, no matter yeah, what. You that's know, right, even if you have an agent. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. They only take ten percent. That's mm-hmm. still ninety percent of the work you got to be doing. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so then I'm also curious to talk to you about what you you've gotten into directing now. Yeah. Talk to me about that. How did that happen? Well, I had directed on stage, but of course, you know, I was raised in the Midwest, so I didn't even go to the theater until I was a teenager. Yeah. So you're raised on movies. And movies were so important to me. Um, I really wanted to direct a movie. So a former student came to me and said he thought that he could raise some money. Did I have a script? And I did have a script. Yeah. I had a comedic um, uh, indie that I'd written. And uh, he said, okay, let's do this. So I got to direct that. And I had never been to film school, and I didn't know anything about directing. So I was so anxious that in pre-production, I had to lay the yoga mat down on the floor and do upward facing dog just to reverse the gripping in my stomach. Wow. I was sick with nerves. But then, you know, you get on set and you start doing your job. Yeah. Of course, I didn't know how long things would take. Yeah. So I didn't know, can I do another take? Yeah. Because how long is it going to take for us to set up for the next shot? Yeah. I gradually learned, you know, you can do about 20 setups a day. Um, so then you can kind of manage your own time. Wow. But at first, I was so in the dark that it was, it was difficult. Interesting. Yeah. Coaching actors, I was used to, so that went well. But managing the day... Even though you have help from a first AD, you still have to know when to walk away from a, a setup. And how did that first project go? Was it good? It was good. It's, yeah. It's uh, uh, Natasha Leone is in it. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's on uh, Amazon. It's called Heterosexuals, and it's it's a beautiful little comedy. Wow. Was she a student of yours? Or? No. No. We just uh, put down some money and hired her, and she was great. That's so badass. Yeah. And then you just did. Can you talk about the thing you have coming out? The wrestling. Yeah, this is a movie we're still in post. Um, it's about a high school wrestling coach who himself has an eating disorder. You know, so many wrestlers get into this binging and purging problem. Yeah. So this high school wrestling coach is a man, uh, and he's got an eating disorder. He's been going to OA, uh, Overeaters Anonymous, for about 10 years. So he looks like he's in good shape, but he's starting to slip. Oh. And he's starting to lie to people about binging and purging. No way. Yeah. So uh, it's cool. Um uh, we have an Indian American family at the center of it, and uh, it's all New York locations, and it's a cool story. And what's the plan for that? Are you doing the festival circuit? Or? Yeah, well, we're going to hire a uh, consultant to help us figure out how best to market it. But uh, I'm sure we'll do some festivals. And do you feel like now that we live in this content bubble, that you know, if you make good work, things will come out of it, or do you think that it's it's a lot tougher now because the market's are saturated. It's a lot tougher, you know. Thousands and thousands of indie films get made up. Because everyone can do it on their fucking iPhone. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, you have to make a, a good product. It also has to be different in some way. Yeah. And then you have to get lucky. Totally. But I've got to tell you, um, the indies that I made before, um, one that I wrote, one that I directed and, di- and wrote, one that I directed but didn't write, um, none of them have gotten a, a, a theatrical release. So there's always a little disappointment with that. But I tell you, it's so satisfying. Yeah. It's so rewarding 
that I would encourage everyone to do it. And what are you watching now? What's inspiring you? Um, you know, Fleabag was very inspiring. Yeah. To see her take a one woman show and turn it into a television series. Yeah. And have it be so fresh and so original and so intelligent. You know, that's really inspiring. Wow. Um, I love, you know, if I have an hour between actors in, in the studio, I'll go to YouTube and I'll watch a little feature on David Fincher or a little feature on Paul Thomas Anderson. Nice. There's so much on YouTube. Yeah. You can get a film school education. I know. <laughs> it's so true. It's great. Yeah. Then I get awesome. my phone bill and it's $200. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's a good way for people to stay in touch with, uh, with your studio and your work? Do you have a website? We've got a website, uh, mccaskillstudio.com. Can you spell that for? Yeah. Yeah. M-C-C-A. A-S-K-I-L-L studio.com. Amazing. Yeah. And Rob, any other parting words? Well, I do want to comment on your work. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about it. <laughs> you're, you're a very grounded actor. I try. You're very grounded. You never push. Yeah. You never phone anything in. And you have a very masculine sensitivity. Yeah. Ah, it's tough, this business, you know. I mean, you've kept me sane. I tell Julian this all the time, and for those listening, Rob is the best. I go to him for everything. Even if it's like a, a two-liner, I go to Rob. You yeah. know, I can do it. Like, it, he just sues me. You're like a soothsayer, man. <laughs> You're like, you bring things out of me. I don't even know how I like get. And I, I usually don't talk about my career on this podcast, mm-hmm. but for the sake of Rob being here and, and my coach, is like, I've been doing the best I've ever been doing in my life, and I've, I, it wouldn't be without you, That's you know? Right. No, 100% you know like to things you have me do it's both as a director and both as your instinct as an actor I'm just like I think you know for those listening out there and this is why I think coaches are so important and I know they can be expensive but I don't drink so yeah. I'd rather spend that money on, on a coach and there's just so many times where I've left your studio working with you and I'm like in the elevator about to walk out of your building onto 37th street and I'm like I just never would have fucking got that. Mm. Never. You know what I mean? I never. And it can be the simplest thing. Yeah. Something that's just so obvious. And that's what the great coaches and teachers like you do. Well, thanks. I, I also think just the process of collaboration. Yeah. You know, when the ideas start going back and forth, they catch fire. Totally. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, to ask you now that we're talking about this. For those out there that maybe don't have coaches or whatever, mm. any advice on self-tapes? Yeah, I do think lighting is kind of important. Um, I do think that it can help convince a casting person to pass on your tape to producers. So I would do a little backlight and a little low light in front and uh, put them on dimmers so that you can control the intensity of that light. So yeah. nothing is harsh, but everything looks, you know, there's light in the eyes. And those you can get at Home Depot, right? And those right. you can get at, you know, anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Um, then I would... Say, try to create some surprises. You know, your transition from beat one into beat two. See if it can be very contrasting so that um, within 30 seconds, you surprise the viewer. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And and, and uh, your, your wife, is she part of McCaskill Studio? Yeah, she teaches uh, intermediate actors on Saturday. She does two classes. Amazing. Yeah. She just made a film herself, which I helped her with. Um, she did everything. She wrote it, directed it, shot it. We didn't have a crew. We were operating the camera and the sound. Total gorilla style. Total gorilla style. She edited it. She, you know, you can get free editing software online. DaVinci. No way. Right? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. She colored it. 
Wow. Right? So now it's out to festivals. And she, she's waiting on that yes. right now? 15-minute film. Amazing. So, yeah, it was it was hard, you know, when you don't have any crew, when you're setting up the camera and you're pressing go and then you're stepping in front to try to do an older over-the-shoulder shot. Yeah. You know, it's hard. Or, or when you do a good take and then you listen to it, there's some static or sound interference. You know, it's hard, but it's worth it. Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Well, Rob McCaskill, thank you so much for being here. I got so much love, and I know yeah. we're just getting started, man. Yeah. I feel it too. All right, rock and roll. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.